Hello, everyone. I'm Kelly Blahos, and I am joined, as always, by my friends and compatriots, Barbara Bolin and Daniel Larison, as we crash the war party and try to make sense of the wackiness around us. Today, we are drawing attention to a story that has been making the rounds in increasingly hysterical terms. Two Iranian warships are headed possibly to our hemisphere in a cross-Atlantic voyage as of this recording. These vessels are likely headed to Venezuela and it is really freaking the mainstream press and hawkish pundits out to think that two of America's so-called enemies are getting together behind our backs. This cannot stand, U.S. officials have told Politico. We will impose sanctions. We will bully anyone who helps them, especially if their cargo involves weapons or other assistance to the Maduro regime in Venezuela. The same thing happened last year when our fleet was actually in the area and threatened to intimidate, if not interdict, Iranian ships that were supposedly carrying petroleum headed for Venezuela. Later on in August 2020, it actually seized Iran oil being ferried on Greek ships bound for Venezuela. Reports in just the last month indicate that the U.S. sold $2 billion worth of Iranian oil it seized from another ship off the coast of Dubai claiming it had the right under current anti-terrorism laws. So as of this recording, we could be up against another dramatic high seas situation. Dan, what right does the U.S. have to bully the Iranians in this way? And what does it really accomplish? And Well, I mean, they, I, don't, I don't think there's any uh, legal right to, to be doing what we've been doing. It's, it's simply a case where we assert that we can do it, uh, that we can seize their oil shipments, uh, and in the case of uh, this latest one, that we can then sell it off and keep the money, uh, and that we also uh, reserve the right to to stop them from conducting their own relations with other countries. Uh, it's it's a, you know, uh, an example of our imperial arrogance, this idea that we get to dictate terms to other countries about how they're able to conduct relations among themselves. Uh, and and the, of course, the absurdity of all of this is that the Iranian-Venezuelan relationship has grown stronger uh, why? Because they're both trying to evade the sanctions we've imposed on both of them. And so the, the maximum pressure campaigns that have been uh, carried out against Venezuela and Iran uh, with different goals in mind, but with the same sort of tactics, uh, have ended up naturally driving them together to cooperate more uh, in sanctions busting, because that's, that's what always happens when you uh, impose these sorts of sweeping sanctions on countries. They, they look for ways to get around them. Uh, and they both have strong incentives to uh, work together to do that. And so what we're seeing is actually a, our own policies backfiring on us uh, insofar as we're pushing them closer together. Uh, but we also need to realize that these two states are pathetically weak compared to the U.S. They don't pose a threat to us. The, the fact that these ships even made the news is a joke because the, this is the first time they're crossing the Atlantic, which suggests that they don't really have any power projection to speak of. So why, why is it even a, a matter for discussion? It's because people need to inflate the threat from both of these states to justify our uh, hostility towards them. Uh, it's, it's really silly. Um, yeah, Barbara, what do you think about all that? I know that you've written about the, the, the U.S. policy on Venezuela and regime change and, and the sanctions. How does this strike you? Well, I think that it's, interesting the way that this these policies backfire. I mean, here we have Venezuela and Iran. Both countries have populations that are starving. 
because we've imposed sanctions, which the Biden, the Trump administration actually increased sanctions on both countries. The Biden administration has not lifted those sanctions. It's left them in place. And now, out of desperation, in a lot of ways, uh, Venezuela is purchasing oil from Iran. It's also purchasing oil from Russia. Now we have ships from two of our major enemies entering into our waters. So we have created a situation where our enemies are entering our hemisphere because of our policy of sanctions. So who created this situation in the first place? We did by imposing these sanctions and creating starvation in the populations of Venezuela and Russia. I think that's why we really need to rethink the sanctions policies in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that we've learned uh, over the last, well, really 30 years, uh, starting with the sanctions on Iraq and then uh, again on, on Myanmar and uh, now with Iran, Venezuela, and Syria, is that these economic wars uh, achieve basically nothing except to inflict pain on the civilian population. It doesn't result in desired policy changes. It doesn't result in regime change, certainly. Uh, and, and there's really no way that they could. Uh, we, we've seen again and again how uh, impoverishing a country strengthens the local regime and makes those who have access to power uh, relatively better off compared with the rest of the country while everyone else suffers. And and that will that will keep happening uh, as we keep doing this. And so it it does it doesn't really surprise me that much that Biden isn't lifting them because he thinks that he can somehow exploit them for leverage. But but what we're seeing is that we, because we never actually follow through on promises of sanctions relief, our our sanctions can't actually function as leverage. They're just functioning as punishment. Yeah, and I think it's really disappointing though in the Biden. I'm disappointed with that. And I think that if you accept the premise that these countries have leaders that don't care about their people, which we always say, then why do you think that starving their populations is going to matter to the right. leaders? Right. And yeah, it's not going to appeal to their conscience or something. That obviously, no. if, they had, if they had a conscience, they wouldn't be doing what they're doing to start with. Right. Uh, no. But the, I mean, the the sort of goofy theory behind this. Or, or sort of unstated assumption behind a lot of these policies is that if you make people miserable enough that they will then overthrow their own government because you right. have been starving them. Yeah, but we but, actually drove them into the arms of Russia and China, our entities, and that's even more ironic than anything else. Yeah, and, and it drives the populations, it either drives the populations to their own governments as a, as a defensive measure, uh, or it so weakens the people that they can't possibly put up any resistance. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's the same idea as, as putting a city under siege, except you're doing it to an entire country. And when you when you besiege a city, you're not going to encourage a revolt, you're just going to get people killed. Yeah, and you kind of get them to actually, ironically, you get them to rally around their evil leader rather than to rebel against, because they're weak, like you said, they're starving. They're not going to rebel because they're not in no physical shape to do so. So it's totally counterproductive and it's morally wrong. And it also hurts the image of America as supposedly a country that does the morally right thing. So from practically every perspective, it's a bad idea and something that the Biden administration really ought to get rid of. 
Absolutely. Yeah, it, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a form of collective punishment and, and it's inherently indiscriminate, right? I mean, if, if we oppose indiscriminate bombing because it hurts non-combatants, then we should oppose indiscriminate economic warfare uh, with these broad sanctions. And we can Sorry, see Kelly, how that's, ahead. yeah, no, we can see how that's playing out in the Iranian presidential elections right now. I mean, um, after how many years of maximum pressure campaign by the Trump administration and continued sanctions, uh, we see now the hardline regime has created a situation in which it was only allowing hardline candidates on the slate for the presidential election and dismissing uh, the the moderates and the reformers. The moderates and reformers have no power right now. And so this whole idea, like Barbara said, that the, the sanctions would result in some sort of organic regime change from within, the exact opposite happened. It empowered the hardliners and created more of a nationalistic fervor within the country itself. Another thing that bothers me about this is that there are no uh, UN sanctions on Iran from selling its oil, which is its chief uh, industry. And so we don't really have the right to interdict these vessels just based on sanctions, on oil sanctions. So what we're doing is we're finding uh, loopholes such as there might be some IRGC person on uh, board or might be behind the actual shipment, the IRG, meaning the the, um, the Iranian uh, regime, uh, was it national? Uh, Revolutionary Guard. Revolutionary Guard, sorry. We had put okay. anti-terrorism sanctions on the IRGC uh, during the Trump administration. So if these vessels are in all, at all connected with an IRGC official, for example, this, this vessel that had been interdicted off the coast of Dubai, that was our. Um, that was the justification for taking the oil off that ship. So here we have a country that has their industry has been their oil industry exports have been crippled because of economic sanctions, and then they find people other countries who will buy the oil, and many countries are willing because it's not sanctioned by the international community, and then we find other reasons or other justifications to pull them out of the water. And I, I find that particularly abhorrent. Um, that is like, you know, another country sanctioning, you know, US, the US troops, and then start um, throwing them in, in jail cells in Afghanistan, Syria, and the 150 countries where we are stationed and just saying, well, we have anti-terrorism laws and we've declared your troops terrorists. Right, it's hypocritical. It's completely hypocritical. Sure. Well, and, and the episode with the, the one ship uh, that was seized off of the UAE uh, is illustrates another interesting problem with our sanctions policy, which is that many other countries, uh, including and especially partners and clients and allies, uh, will assist in sanctions busting. Right? The, in theory, the UAE should be on, on side with whatever the U.S. is trying to do in the region, so you would think. But in fact, the UAE is, is a great clearinghouse uh, for sanctions busting transactions coming out of Iran. Uh, they, they love doing that business and, and providing the, that middleman uh, to, to sort of whitewash these transactions. Um, I mean, I, of course, I think the sanctions ought to go away because they, they're, they're not working and they, and for all sorts of reasons, they, they can't work to achieve the goals that they're set out to, to achieve. Uh, but it, the, the fact that you have so many other countries willing to subvert them 
shows that, they, that no one really respects their legitimacy. They're, they're simply afraid of being caught and punished. But um, I also think that some of these countries are looking at us and thinking that we, the United States, is enacting these sanctions as a way of privileging our oil at the expense of other countries' oil. For instance, take our sanctions on Russian oil being so essentially go the pipeline to Germany. The fact that we were willing to sanction that for what are basically economic reasons, mostly economic reasons, I think that the Middle East nations, like you're pointing out, UAE, and in fact, they've said so in several statements, and their ambassadors have said so. They look at it as the United States is not doing this because they're interested in terrorism or they care about what Iran is doing, uh, funding Hamas, supposedly. They are doing it because they're trying to get a leg up economically, and they're trying to make sure that they have the biggest slice of the pie on the oil market. And that's why they're ignoring our sanctions. And that's another way that we look hypocritical and we especially appear like we're no moral higher standard that we have. I think that that's another factor here as well. guest today is Gregory Brew. He is a historian of oil, U.S. foreign relations, and the modern Middle East and Iran. His work explores the connections between the formation of a global oil economy, the geopolitics of the Cold War, the international development movement, and the rise of Iran as a petro-state under the rule of Mohammad Reza Shah Pahlavi. He has also written for Responsible Statecraft, War on the Rocks, The Washington Post, and The National Interest, among others. Welcome to the show, Greg. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. Uh, yeah, it's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, uh, one of the things that you've worked on in your research uh, is uh, the 1953 coup in Iran, uh, backed by the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, as uh, you've written about, uh, there have been a number of uh, revisionist accounts of the 1953 coup that have been coming out lately that seek to minimize the role of the U.S. and U.K. in, uh, in the coup and overthrowing Mossadegh. Uh, tell us why the U.S. and Britain intervened in Iranian politics to topple uh, the prime minister, and why do you think revisionists today want to diminish that role? Well, thanks so much. Um, first of all, I would preface, uh, preface my answer by saying the 53 coup is something of a foundational moment for U.S.-Iranian relations. It's often considered to be sort of the origin point for uh, modern U.S.-Iranian relations, although, of course, the two nations had relations going back for decades before then. Um, it's an early flashpoint in the global Cold War and uh, a pivotal turning point in the history of the global oil economy in the ways in which it engages with issues like uh, nationalizations in the third world, the roles of Anglo-American international oil companies, and the interest of the United States, Great Britain, um, to control the oil resources of the Middle East um, and the third world more generally. Um, so typically, when historians, scholars, pundits, commentators talk about the 53 coup, uh, their arguments for why the United States and Great Britain intervene generally focus on two overarching points. The first is fear of communism. Uh, and this is a dominant narrative, uh, both in uh, uh, general historical scholarship on the coup and also in accounts 
of the coup from within the CIA, from participants in the operation, from U.S. policymakers and British policymakers who were um, active at the time. And according to this dominant narrative, the United States intervened out of fear that Mossadegh, Mohammad Mossadegh, the Iranian prime minister, was leading Iran down a path that would end with the country falling to Soviet influence or communist rule. So this argument positions the coup, uh, as I said, as a flashpoint in the Cold War. The United States intervening through covert action to topple a government that was perceived as being soft on communism or leaning towards uh, Moscow and replacing it with one that was pro-Western, that was more conservative, that was linked to the Shah and the military, and which allowed for the United States to rely on Iran as a regional ally uh, for the next 20, 25 years. The second explanation uh, focuses on oil. A number of scholars, most notably, most recently, the Iranian historian Ervan Abrahamian, who is an esteemed scholar and historian of this period, has centered the issue of oil in their accounts of why the coup took place. Uh, and here, this gets back to the issue of Iran's nationalization of its British-owned oil industry. Under Mossadegh's leadership in 1951, Iran nationalized its oil industry, which was owned by the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, which we now know as BP. And this set off a crisis between Iran and Great Britain and the oil companies in which the United States attempted to play a kind of mediating role in finding a way to resolve this nationalization crisis. According to the account of Abrahamian and others, the United States decided that the best way to accomplish uh, a resolution to the nationalization crisis and place Iran's oil back under Western control was through uh, a covert action, was through a coup d'etat. The coup is therefore motivated by a desire to reverse the nationalization and returns Iran oil to Western control. So those are kind of the big arguments, fear of communism on one hand and oil on the other. And uh, I should preface my, my answer by saying this you know, issue, the, my discussion of the coup, is part of a much larger project that I've worked on uh, both as a, a PhD candidate at Georgetown University and now as a historian. Uh, it forms kind of the central spine of a book that I'm completing on U.S.-Iranian relations and oil covering 1941 to 1965. And so I've, you know, spent the last, gosh, seven or eight years <laughs> combing through all of the relevant documents from U.S. archives, from British archives, the archives of the CIA, the uh, BP archive in Great Britain, as well as uh, any Iranian source I can get my hand on. Uh, and this includes the 2017 Foreign Relations volume that came out that uh, had about 300 new CIA documents that shed additional light on how the coup happened and, and uh, you know, the various motivations that were involved. And what I came to realize was that neither of these arguments, the communism argument on the one hand, the oil argument on the other, were particularly convincing. Uh, when you look at the reports, the intelligence estimates at the time, uh, U.S. Uh, analysts did not think that communism was a particularly acute threat in Iran at this time. The communist Tudor party was relatively small. It was operating primarily underground. It had been infiltrated by the CIA and by CIA assets. It lacked the resources to mount a takeover of the government. Uh, Mossadegh was not a communist. And you have U.S. accounts reports making this claim all the way up until August of 1953, right before the coup takes place, saying that Mossadegh doesn't like the Soviet Union. He's not a communist. He's a nationalist. Uh, while he's perhaps a little bit more friendly towards the Tuda, this was primarily due to domestic political concerns that he had. He was facing concerted action and opposition from more conservative elements like the Shah. Uh, so the idea of Iran, quote unquote, falling to communism was 
so vague as to be uh, essentially uh, undefensible. Uh, the second explanation, this explanation of oil, the control of oil, the desire of the United States to go in and take control of Iranian oil is also not particularly convincing when you look at what's happening in the global oil economy at the time. Uh, Iran's nationalization happens in 1951. Very quickly, the major oil companies led by BP, supported by the British and American governments, place a boycott on Iranian oil. They refuse to buy it. They refuse to ship it. Iran owns no oil tankers. It has no way of marketing its oil independently, although it is more than capable of producing oil. Um, that's an argument I make in my book. This idea that Iran could not operate its oil industry is kind of a racist myth that the British come up with at the time and, and that, they, uh, that they proliferate through uh, various media outlets and in their official documents. But Iran could operate its oil industry, but it couldn't sell its oil without the cooperation of the companies. So they boycott Iran and they increase production elsewhere. Uh, they increase output in Saudi Arabia, in Kuwait, in Iraq, and Venezuela. Uh, these other countries, by the way, are more than happy to take Iran's market share. <laughs> they're, they're very happy to see their production increase. So Iran gets isolated from the international oil economy. And when the United States government approaches American oil companies in late 1952 with a plan to restart Iran's oil industry, uh, they say, not interested. We have no interest in taking Iranian oil. We're, we're not really uh, in the market for that. The market is in a state of oversupply. So when I started writing the book, um, by the way, there's an article uh, that I wrote for the Texas National Security Review in 2019 that addresses a lot of these same points. I had to come up with a new explanation. And an explanation for the coup that I came up with was what I call the collapse narrative. And what it essentially posits is that the United States and Britain as well, although I particularly focus on the United States, as the British had more specific and much clearer motivations, the United States was very concerned about an Iranian collapse. They were worried that Iran's leadership, particularly Mossadegh, but also his sort of whole nationalist governing coalition, uh, that they were incompetent, that they were incapable of managing Iran's economy, without the support of an operating oil industry, that they would fall to communism, not so much out of you know, ideological predisposition, but mostly because they would fail themselves to run the country and they would have to lean on support from the Soviet Union in order to make a go of it. And so the United States was very worried about a collapse in Iran unless the oil industry was restarted, unless the boycott was ended, and unless Iran could access oil revenues. And here's where I link the coup with my general thesis about the birth of the Iranian petrostate. The United States launched the 1953 coup, part of fear of an oilless Iran. What an Iran that could not support itself on the wealth of oil would do in the future, how it would eventually succumb to this, uh, this internal collapse. So the birth of the Iranian petrostate is linked to decisions made in Washington, D.C. to overthrow the Mossadegh government, because ultimately the United States did not, could not conceive of a stable Iran without an operational oil industry and without a cooperative agreement between Iran and the major oil companies. So the birth of the Iranian petrostate is linked to the coup of 1953, to the U.S. decision. And I'll, I'll close by saying that the revisionist scholars uh, Ray Takei and others, Zariash Bayandor, 
uh, and others who have argued that the U.S. and British role in the coup wasn't very large. Um, that is an argument that could potentially be made through a very close reading of documents, this idea that the coup was primarily an Iranian affair, that it was driven primarily by Iranian actors. Um, while I don't believe that argument, I, I do feel as though it could be engaged with. The idea that the United States did not want to overthrow Mossadegh is, to me, <laughs> impossible to defend. Right. The coup ended in a way that the United States wanted it to end. And that, I think, is incontrovertible. Absolutely. And uh, one of the things that interests me about your thesis uh, that the U.S. was concerned about an Iranian collapse then is that so much of recent U.S.-Iran policy has been aimed at triggering regime collapse now. Uh, and so there, there's this uh, strange idea that, that somehow we, we want to implode one of the largest countries in the Middle East and throw it into chaos. Uh, what, what lessons can we draw from the 1953 coup for uh, U.S. policy towards Iran today, do you think? Uh, yeah, that's a very relevant comparison, I think. And it's, it's, it's a point that I make more broadly in my book, which covers about 25 uh, years of U.S.-Iranian relations. This notion of a collapse narrative um, is particularly redolent in 1953, but you see it repeated throughout this period. And as you say, it comes back uh, in our contemporary uh, context. The American policymakers, American officials, tend to have a very reductive view of Iran. Uh, and particularly in the early Cold War, they were preoccupied with this notion of whether or not Iran could manage itself, whether or not Iranian leaders, um, not just Mossadegh, but the Shah, the Shah's ministers and others, whether Iran was capable of surviving as an independent nation state. This idea that it would somehow succumb to an internal collapse, which by the way, was always very vaguely framed. The same way that some pundits, uh, some commentators today talk about a quote unquote collapse within the Islamic Republic, it, it's usually very ill-defined how this collapse will happen, you know, what, what the, what the uh, ingredients in this collapse will be. In the early Cold War, American policymakers discussed Iran in very similar terms. They talked about a collapse through inflation or through corruption or through uh, a general uh, bottom-up upheaval, um, ignoring things like the fact that Iran's economy was very large, that it was quite complex, that uh, it wasn't actually uh, overly dependent on oil, that it was primarily agricultural. Um, this concept of a collapse, uh, I think was born more out of psychological predispositions with Iran as a third world nation, as a non-white nation, or I should say non-Anglo-Saxon nation. The idea of race is quite complicated in this context. Uh, but you see it repeated throughout the Cold War and you see it enter our discourse on Iran today. Commentators love to talk about Iran collapsing uh, as though this is something that could happen over the course of a weekend uh, or something that could happen as the result of sanctions or a missile strike or what have you. So I see a lot of parallels between our current discourse and uh, the period on which I've uh, done my research. Hi, Greg. It's Kelly. Thanks for coming on. I want to go back to your thesis for just one second. Um, the idea that the, the coup wasn't about communism or oil, but about this fear of Iran collapsing. Uh, but it does sound like this fear of collapsing was connected to both oil and communism. So can, it just sounds like you're, this is a more nuanced way of saying 
that the wet that the West wanted to open up those markets back up, uh, the oil markets and this fear of communism taking the place of any collapsing government was also a concern. Hi, Kelly. You're absolutely right. Um, <laughs> I noticed that I had been talking for about 10 minutes, so I tried to wrap up my answer as succinctly as I could, <laughs> but you're absolutely right. The collapse narrative uh, tries to uh, essentially combine those very same yeah. points, that this notion of a collapse into communism, because that was very much what they foresaw, the U.S. officials. They foresaw a future where Iran eventually collapsed and then returned under a communist government. That was the outcome that they worried about. Um, they thought it was going to happen. They didn't say it was going to happen imminently, but they did worry about it happening very quickly. Um, so that was, communism was absolutely a concern. Um, and oil, and the oil question is the next part of it. The oil question is not so much getting Iranian oil back under Western control, although that was absolutely a concern, but restarting the Iranian oil industry so that Iran could benefit from revenues derived from the sale of oil on the international market. The market didn't need Iranian oil. The companies had to be convinced to go back in in 1954, uh, primarily under pressure from the United States government, because the United States was worried about what would happen not to a Iranless oil economy, but to an oilless Iranian economy, if that makes sense. Can I ask a quick follow-up, because I, I know I want, want Barbara to get in with her question, but how long was it uh, in on this timeline until Americans knew that there were actual that there was an actual coup? I would imagine at first that that wasn't the case. That wasn't something that was commonly known. Are you saying this this idea that it had been uh, a, a, a CIA coup, coup yeah. a foreign coup? Oh, Correct. okay. <laughs> um, because I would I would say that Iranians knew immediately. <laughs> right. Oh, absolutely. But Americans, you should say Americans or the West in general. Sure, sure. Um, I think, so my answer to that would be, uh, it was immediately suspected, um, although it was not, naturally, it was not publicly admitted. Um, I do believe, I would have to double check this, but I do believe a Western media outlet within a few years uh, speculated that Mossadegh had been overthrown by the United States and Great Britain. Um, you don't have, I mean, the first expose, I guess you could say, the first sort of substantive report is um, the memoir of Kermit Roosevelt, which was published in 1980. Uh, it's known as, it's called Counter-Coup. Kermit Roosevelt uh, was the sort of primary CIA operative in Iran. He's a very colorful character. And he publishes a memoir in 1980 where he essentially says, you know, this is how we did it. Um, so that's that's kind of often pointed to as the moment where, you know, the United, the quote, the United States overthrew uh, Mossadegh, end quote, becomes sort of common knowledge. But it had been widely suspected for yeah. years before that Mossadegh had been overthrown by uh, by foreign actors, both the United States and Great Britain. You have United States officials admitting in the late 1990s that the U.S. had been involved. Madeleine Albright in 1999, um, and it's become you know more openly admitted now. The British government has yet to admit any involvement and has yet surprise. to declassify any documents. Surprise! Surprise! <laughs> and to be perfectly honest, none of us <laughs> think that they ever will. <laughs> So I have a question for you, Greg, and it, sure. it directly relates to that, actually. So as a historian, I'm sure you're familiar with Britain's long history of dragging other countries that are its allies into wars with its enemies. I'm saying Britain dragging 
Britain's allies into wars with Britain's enemies that sure. they have. So I'm wondering if there's any evidence in the diplomatic record um, on the UK side or the US side, for instance, of meetings between diplomats where, because there had to be, because I'm thinking of like, for instance, what led to the Sykes-Picot Treaty or agreement and I and with Britain and France in uh dividing up Syria and Iraq and mm-hmm. Jordan and that region. So there I'm thinking that there might be some sort of record there and I was just wondering if you if any of your research showed any evidence of that. Sure, sure. This is another very prevalent question in the literature um because for quite a while before you had a lot of documents being declassified, there were a lot of theories uh and notions about how the coup came about and one of them was Well, the British wanted Mossadegh gone, and they wanted him gone essentially from the moment he took office. Uh, And there was a lot there. There were, you know, there were beliefs that the British went to the United States and said, hey, will you help us overthrow Mossadegh? (laughs) And over the course of several months or a year or so, eventually they got the United States to agree. So this idea that the U.S. kind of buckled under British pressure was for quite a while uh, quite a prevalent theory. Um, We now know from declassified documents that it wasn't quite that simple. Um, Mossadegh takes office in May of 1951. Quite quickly, the British decide uh, we want him gone. The British had been kingmakers in Iran for decades before this point. They had uh, been very heavily involved in Iranian domestic politics. So the idea of bringing about the overthrow of a prime minister was not something that was, you know, that wasn't a reach for them, uh, uh, strategically speaking. So they tried for quite a while to have Mossadegh removed. Eventually they fail. And in October of 1952, Mossadegh closes the British embassy. And at that moment, the British go to the CIA and they say, uh, look, you should help us overthrow Mossadegh. We think he's turning communist. And, (laughs) And we have British documents, we have British accounts saying, Yes, we went to the Americans and we decided to push the communist angle because we thought that's the one that would work. Yeah, they, they knew the way to our hearts. They sure do. They, 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 as they thought this was an argument that we would find compelling. But what we now know is that American officials, this is October, November of 1952, they saw the British proposed this plan and the general American response was this won't, this won't work. Mossadegh is too strong. There's no good alternative. There's no pro-Western leader. The Shah, they held the Shah in, in very low standing at this point. The Shah was considered a weak, indecisive figure. It's not until 53, 54 that you see a concerted effort by Americans to bolster the Shah. Right now, 52, they don't think much of him. So they look at the British plan and they say, this, this won't work. We're going to go back to Mossadegh with new negotiations, with a new oil plan, with a new attempt to resolve the nationalization crisis, because we don't like Mossadegh. But we think he's our best bet for keeping Iran non-communist. Again, like I said, the idea that Mossadegh was turning communist was not a very relevant notion. Uh, And the British say, okay, you know, it didn't work. And they just they kind of go back. And for the next four or five months, you have detailed negotiations between the Americans on the one side and the Iranians on the other that eventually fail for a variety of very complicated technical reasons that I won't get into. Uh, I won't bore your listeners with discussions of uh, uh, compensation terms for uh, oil industry assets, although maybe some of you might be interested in hearing about that stuff. I think it's fascinating. But eventually the Americans determine in February of 53, Mossadegh cannot be reasoned with. The nationalization crisis cannot be resolved. We need to overthrow him. So the U.S. decision to mount a coup happens 
I would say at a remove from the British. They then return to the British and say, we're getting rid of Mossadegh. We know you have assets in Iran. Let's cooperate. And the British say, absolutely. Sounds great. <laughs> we will accept CIA leadership. So we know from declassified documents that there was certainly an interest in the British side to get rid of Mossadegh. That is uh, indisputable. And there was an American interest. You have people like Kermit Roosevelt and Alan Dulles, particularly, who thought Mossadegh should go. But you don't have an American decision until early 53. And it happens uh, removed from the British. It's not as the result of British pressure. The British are involved because the British are part of the nationalization crisis. But the decision to overthrow Mossadegh uh, happens inside Washington. It happens inside the White House, inside Eisenhower's National Security Council and the CIA. And then they return to the British and begin cooperating after that. So the notion that it's perfidious Albion, you know, coercing the Americans into doing their bidding in Iran, it's, it's a very romantic notion and it fits our idea of how the British act in this time, um, but it doesn't, really, uh, it doesn't really line up with the documentary evidence, I'm, I'm sorry to say. Thanks, Greg. Uh, we really appreciate having you on. Um, I, we, I don't think we have time for any more questions, uh, so I'll, I'll just uh, say thanks again for coming on the show, and uh, we look forward to reading your book uh, when it comes out. Thank you very much. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on, and I hope that the book will come out. It's currently working its way through the academic publishing uh, system, so inshallah, it will come out at some point in the next year or two. <laughs> Excellent. Have to have you back on when it yes. does. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, let's do it. Thanks, Greg. Thank you. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.